Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Andrew, why are we doing this? Why do, you, why do we put together these episodes of Dr. Doctor? You know, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. It takes a lot of time, but I think it's not for, no, for nothing. I mean, the goal is the new evangelization, right? To bring Christ to everyone. And especially we, in discussing it initially, thought we had something unique to offer with our role in the field of healthcare. I, I think you're right. The new evangelization, new methods, but the same message, uh, same message of God become man, Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. You know, I love the answer that G.K. Chesterton gave when people asked him why he became a Catholic. It was just, it was so darn simple and true. Ooh, I don't think I know that one. To get rid of my sins. <laughs> I mean, how many people try to get rid of their sins on talk shows and by talking to so many people and by psychotherapy, and we've got the confessional. Yeah, so, amen. So again, yes, the fullness of the Catholic faith in medicine. Anything from a Catholic perspective in the world of medicine is what we consider fair game. Well, and, you know, for, for myself, I thought that it would line up a lot more. You know, hospitals were created by the church. Yes. Right? And so y- you would think that it would be a natural following, but it's sad to see how many things are drifting away from the church and drifting away from how Christ would do medicine. And so hopefully we can identify those, turn them around, or at least point them out to our listeners. So, you know, WWDJD, what would Dr. Jesus do? Right? Hey, there you go. So, when, you know, the three of us, when um, Andrew, Chris, and I got together, we came up with a stretch goal, what we consider a big, hairy, audacious goal. You know, the crazy idea that we want this show to become the preferred source of reliable information for navigating healthcare decisions from an authentically Christian perspective. Do you think we made the challenge big enough, Andrew? Well, if if you don't know where you're going, you're sure not to get there. <laughs> and the the thing that I noticed is, especially recently going through training, when you want information, you're going to find anything on the Internet. Yes. I know some people say you can't find the truth on the Internet, but I think the truth's out there, but so is a lot of false paths. There's not a good filter for the truth on the Internet. No. Ev- every every opinion's got an equal voice, and it really shouldn't be like that. Or, or if it is, you should at least be able to identify people who have the same worldview as you do. So when you have a question, especially one that would be ethically sensitive, you know who you can trust and a, a place you can turn to, at least as a starting point. Yes, and in fact, on one of our past shows when we interviewed medical student Brendan Radican from Marion University, he w- was at the time putting together a Catholic medical ethics app, which is now up and running on both iTunes and Google Play. So How cool is that? Catholic Medical Ethics app. You know, you Google that and you'll find it. So, uh, And it is approved by the Catholic Medical Association, believe it or not. Well, enough of our playful, um, self-indulgent banter. Today's guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Dr. Marie Hilliard. But this is a nurse doctor, a Ph.D., doctor. She's the immediate past president of the National Association of Catholic Nurses, and she's going to help us to understand nursing as a vocation, as a calling. Yeah, and Dr. Hilliard is just, she's such a wonderful person. I had a chance to serve with her on the CMA Ethics Committee, so she brings so much to the table, not only from her experience as a nurse, but also the bioethics. Right, and we're going to see that uh, in uh, the second half of her interview, talk about ethical challenges in the world of nursing. So to lead in to the subject of nursing, you know, Andrew, where would you be without your nurses? Well, I would be nowhere, <laughs> to, to say it bluntly. I mean, everybody on the healthcare team has a specific role, but they're very different. And if you're missing one piece of the puzzle, you can quickly see how everything falls apart. You know, the role of a doctor is a unique role, but usually we even, I'm thinking of rounding on sick patients in the hospital. I may be with that person for 10 to 15 minutes if it's confusing, sometimes shorter right. than that. Right. For the other 23 and three quarters hours of the day, whether that person gets better or they don't get better has nothing to do with me. It, <laughs> it relies heavily, I mean solely, on the nurses. And you can see places where nurses are, are short-staffed 
and you can see their absence. And then you can see places where nurses are taking the lead and those patients do well. So I think all of medicine would be up a creek, so to speak, without nurses. Oh, I, I certainly would be. I mean, they are programmed to have more time available with the patient. Uh, they seem to be more compassionate, <laughs> you know, yeah. often than physicians are. Well, they're they're evidently more trustworthy, as we found out, right? Uh, yeah, in, we'll, in we'll get to that. Prep. We'll, we'll get to that. Yes, they, they are trustworthy. Yes, I wonder if that's why a lot of doctors marry nurses. <laughs> but it makes <laughs> you wonder, know. why in the world would a nurse ever want to marry a doctor? That's the difficult question. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a research project. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time for that one. But, you know, I remember my first memory of a nurse was when I was six years old, getting my tonsils out, and... The nurses were apparently having fun with each other. So one of the nurses came in to me and said, okay, when, when this other nurse comes in, just tell her that she's full of BM. It's like, oh, okay, is this some kind of joke? Yeah, it's a joke. So the uh, other nurse comes in and I say, oh, hi, I heard that you're full of BM. And she <laughs> just gets this look on her face like, what? And for those of you who don't know what BM stands for, you can go look it up on the internet. But as a six-year-old boy, I didn't know what it was, but at a young age, I was introduced to the snarky sense of humor of nurses, which has continued in my office through today. But uh, that sense of humor is typically the uh, the world of dad jokes. So we try to keep the jokes clean. So they might be groaners, but they're always clean. And so they collect them and even bring them to me now. <laughs> so, yes, nurses playing with each other. So we have a bonus trivia question. Uh, this isn't the official trivia question, but it's an extra one that you can answer, and it relates to what Andrew was just talking about. I might have given given it away. I'm sorry, Tom. Well, he probably did, but you know what? Uh, we'll take it out on him out back after the taping. <laughs> so anyway, last year, 2018, Forbes magazine surveyed 1,025 United States adults, and they asked what the most trusted profession in America was uh, by asking about whether there was a high, low, very high, very low level of trust for a number of professions. Guess what came out on top? Nurses. Nurses, most trusted profession in America. 84% of this cohort of 1,025 adults said that nurses were either highly or very highly trusted by them. Well, it totally makes sense to me because if you think about it, when you are in a position of need, you do put everything into that nurse. She's given you medicines you can't pronounce, <laughs> I, IV medicines, who knows what's going in there. I mean, you are you are in, in every way. I mean, even helping with bathing and stuff, you let your guard down and thank goodness yes. they're there to help. Well, and that's true because, you know, as a patient, we do best if we exhibit that one virtue which we love in everybody except ourselves and that virtue is called vulnerability yeah. so we really want someone we can trust when we are vulnerable and so patients probably are more willing to be vulnerable with a nurse if they trust them that much guess what came in second at 67 percent highly or very highly trusted i i was pleasantly surprised yes it, the- it's it's our profession physicians and number two at 66%, you know, neck and neck, were pharmacists, those who get us the drugs and all their side effects and healing properties. I, I wondered if, if we should do a bonus, bonus trivia question of the least trustworthy profession. I, <laughs> may, maybe it's a glass half empty attitude, but I couldn't help but glance to the bottom of the chart. There were find. two groups <laughs> with an 8% level that were highly or very highly trusted. And uh, I think these people, when they're not, because... One of them can be a full-time job. The other one not necessarily is, so maybe they do the same thing. I, I know a couple of people that do. Nice people, the ones I'm speaking of. <laughs> yes, but they are. Uh, members of Congress. At 8%. We're scraping the bottom. Along with? Car salespeople. Yes. You know, it's and if, if you do both, you're facing an uphill trust battle, <laughs> but you have to be all the more trustworthy to get through. That's right. So that's what that survey showed. Now, other data that we've learned uh, is that in the world, there, according to the World Health Organization, there are roughly 29 million nurses and midwives. And of those 29 million, the U.S. has a disproportionate amount. We have 3.9 million of them. And 2.9 million are RNs, registered nurses. About three-quarters of a million are LPNs, or licensed practical nurses. And then about 200,000 are certified registered nurse anesthetists who can put you to sleep 
without being boring, nurse practitioners or certified nurse midwives. And practicing physicians in the country, just over 700,000. So this means that for every doctor, there's almost five and a half nurses out there. Okay, so that's kind of the ratio. And it also shows the different types of degrees and education pathways that people get into nursing with. Right. So as I've learned offline with uh, our guest, an RN, or registered nurse, passes an exam which makes her capable of not only caring for a patient, but putting together a care plan. Right. Whereas a licensed practical nurse does not put together care plans, but can follow one. Right. I didn't know that until I talked to Marie. You, apparently, were just a font of knowledge. I I actually (laughs) just found out similarly uh, in discussing it with our office manager, who is a nurse, because I said, you know, how how can we tell tell the difference and what what roles should people be carrying out? But if you think about it, I mean, I think especially like labor and delivery, I, I used to deliver babies. I know Chris, if he were here, could attest. A lot of times when they'll call you from the labor and delivery floor, this patient came in, these are the contractions, I don't think she's in labor, it looks like she has a urine infection, she's allergic to this, you might want to try this, does that sound okay? And that's a lot easier Oh my! at 2 a.m. <laughs> yes. compared to, uh, I think there might be a patient here who's like <laughs> <Me too. laughs> pregnant. Uh, Who's pregnant. <laughs> you know, so it really shows, I mean, so much of the medical care plan is developed and carried out by the nurse team, especially, I think, in the hospital setting, but also in the office. I mean, our office nurses field a lot of questions, and then when they get something out of the normal, then they'll come and talk to me. They, they need to be not only good at putting patients at ease, which is one of the most valuable things my nurses do before I do surgery, but also at educating. Oh, 100%. That's a huge part of what they do. We say the key things, and then we, let, we leave the room, and we let them reiterate it and hold their hands and answer the questions that they still have. So, a lot on nursing we're going to cover with our guest, uh, Marie Hilliard. Before we go to our break, I want to pose a, a Catholic nursing medical trivia question of the day. Many saints are patrons of nurses. And these include St. Agatha, St. Camillus de Lellis, St. Elizabeth of Hungary, and, and uh, even St. Catherine of Siena. So, this question involves the latter, St. Catherine of Siena. She was born in a time when a certain disease was running wild throughout Europe, and she is reported to have miraculously laid hands on some victims of this disease who were miraculously cured. In other words, this disease was going around not only during her birth, but even in her adult life. She also nursed many victims of this disease who died of it. So the question, what is the name of this disease, you know, popular name or scientific name, and for a bonus, What was the cause of this disease? You'll hear about it toward the end of the show, but we'll be back with more Dr. Doctor after the break. We're back now with our guest today on Dr. Doctor. She comes to us from Washington, D.C. via telephone, Dr. Marie Hilliard. She's a senior fellow at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. She has two master's degrees, one in maternal child health nursing and another one in religious studies. She also has a degree as a canon lawyer, a licentiate, and a PhD in nursing. She's also a retired colonel from the United States Army, so don't mess with her. Marie, welcome to (laughs) Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much for the nice introduction, and you can mess with me, though. You can. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're at a distance, so. Uh, so. So, Marie, the essence of what it means to be a doctor seems to be getting a little fuzzy these days, but I'm wondering if you can tell us what is the essence of what it means to be a nurse, and has it changed over time? I don't think it's changed over time. Let's start with that, because I think with the high-tech and we'll probably talk a little bit about that in terms of what's new Mm -hmm. and what's old, Um, people think, well, hasn't nursing changed? And we all seem to, those of us in the profession, seem to talk about what it used to be like and now. But the essence is caring. The essence of nursing is caring. And that doesn't mean without being adequately prepared. Faith and reason go hand in hand, and we need to have a scientific basis for our caring, which is grounded in faith. But that essence of caring, it goes all the way back to the parable of the Good Samaritan when yes. we were defining who for, we had defined for us by the parable from Jesus, who our neighbor is. And uh, in that parable, the, the persons who went by the abused and beaten man were of the Jewish faith, not that they were being singled out. Jesus was a Jew himself, 
So yeah, they were actually following stuff. their laws and understood it. Right, right, exactly. And the Samaritan was basically despised by some very uh, adherent uh, Jews, and he was the one who helped. So that, when Jesus then said, go do likewise, in terms of who's our neighbor and who we're going to serve, that's the essence of nursing. It, it's caring. We don't, and when we get to two issues of conscience rights uh, later on in the program, we don't discriminate against persons. We refuse to do things that violate the best interest of the patient and our conscience, but we don't, we care, and we will always keep you safe. And that has not changed, and it hasn't changed from the first days of the church when we had religious women, holy women, who weren't necessarily, they weren't sisters then, um, who were actually helping keep the community healthy. And so nursing goes way back. How would you define, besides the parable of the Good Samaritan, the term caring? What does it mean to care? I think it's uh, an approach of holism, of looking at the person in a family, in their environment, in their work situation, and nursing, and I don't mean to put down medicine because I, I have high, <laughs> high regard for medicine, but I think what makes us unique is medicine can get so specialized, but even with nurse practitioners who can be within a certain specific uh, discipline of healthcare, the integration of all the aspects, the psychosocial, social, the physical, the, the occupational, the spiritual, All of that is put together by a nurse. That's why we're so busy uh, in this high-tech environment where nurses are also there with their computer in front of them trying so hard to make sure everything's recorded. But what nurses do is try to care for the total human being, not just the disease. Marie, you you bring up a really good point about having that focus on caring, especially for the whole person. You know, if someone decides they want to go into healthcare, what what are some of the reasons that students choose or should choose to be a nurse over another role in healthcare, be it a physician, respiratory therapist, something else? They're all caring roles that you've just described, and the thing that makes it different, I get, I think, is back to that general practitioner. If I can, it's almost like being in, in internal medicine, if you will, in terms of that the physician who's looking at the total patient within the total situation. That's what the nurse does. The nurse doesn't just do respiratory care or just do physical therapy. In fact, we used to do it all in terms of what it used to be like and what it is today. We have a lot of allied health that when I first entered the profession wasn't there. So the nurse is the integrating force. And the only reason one goes into a hospital is for nursing care. You can go to a surgery center. You can go to a physical therapy office that's outpatient. You can go to a lab. You can have x-rays. You can do so much, but you go into a hospital because you need nursing care. And that's the person who's putting it all together, be it in the clinic in the hospital, knowing the patient's going back to a home where this particular protocol just can't be followed, to an intensive care unit where you have a a man who might be the breadwinner of a family who's uh, got young children, and putting that all together, calling social services when that's needed for this family, calling for spiritual help. So So it sounds like a nurse is going to be somebody who wants more in-depth care, more in-depth time with each patient, a smaller number, so but a greater depth involved in as many different areas of their life as they could as opposed to what a doctor is able to do. Is that partially well, correct? Well, I, I, I think also it's, it's depth and breadth, the breadth of, oh, breath, yes. of uh, what the nurse is addressing in terms of not just being the endocrinologist who right. deals with the... Uh, and that's why I think there's a lot of similarities, so I don't want you to think I... I think medicine leaves out the total person. Internal medicine seems to do that also uh, in terms of the approach to the patient. But nursing uh, is where it all gets implemented. Physicians can write an order, but where it all gets implemented, where it all gets put together, where a nurse can say to the physician, you know, this really isn't working. So a nurse uh, likes implementing care more than necessarily figuring out what's at, what's the problem but they like to know, okay, this is the problem, I'm going to help fix it. 
Well, they really do have to know what the problem is. I mean, that's a scientific basis. They really do. But I think, yeah, I'd like to think of the nurse as the fixer, yes. I, I think one of the things that you're kind of describing is where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the, the best intentions and plans and everything would really be for not if, if we don't have someone to pull them together and actually carry it out. Right. And I think many of the physician would tell you where a nurse has probably saved the day. Oh, yes, <laughs> actually absolutely. Saved the day. It makes me wonder about, you know, we were looking at some data about differences in the number of nurses between the sexes and how, according to recent data, just over 90% of nurses are women. Uh, not mm-hmm. to say that men can't be nurses, but I wonder if it says something about qualities that are more natural to the feminine sex and qualities that are very prevalent or very important in nursing. What do you think about that? Well, I do have a nephew who's a nurse and a very competent nurse anesthetist, and I know he's a caring human being, so I wouldn't want to rule that out. But I, I do think the nature of the maternal experience for um, women, which, of course, we are engendered to be moms, even those of who are not moms and it might be spiritual moms in families, I think there is something to be said about that in terms of the innate gift of women to reproduce and carry a child and, and actually nurse a child, physically nurse a child. And you think of the, the confusion of terms here. Nursing and <laughs> nursing, nursing, yes. Yeah, that's right. true. And so there is that, but I, I also think uh, I've had, even as a patient myself, I've had some great male nurses. And I think what's happened over time, just as it happened in education after World War II when men, because of the GI Bill, came back and went to school and became teachers, the field in education changed with men being more apt than historically to go in to be teachers. The same is happening in healthcare and nursing. Uh, certainly because of the ability to earn an income now. We know that it's nursing is a very secure profession. So I think that's a good thing where there's a, a mix of skills and also gifts. And uh, we each have gifts, and some of them might be uh, easier for a woman who all her life has been, let's say, a caregiver in the home to be able to read, let's say, the signs of a, a young child and and maybe her gifts in that area make her better to care for some populations, but I would never say that means that men don't have that same gift also because they're dads too, uh, maybe just spiritual dads, but there's something that happens in a family when you have to care for another human being in your own home uh, that's your own flesh and blood or someone that you've adopted that I think helps develop those skills too. So, yes, uh, historically it's been a... Uh, female profession, and yes, there are certain gifts that women, just biologically, were the caregivers in terms of carrying that baby and feeding that baby, biologically feeding and nursing, but that doesn't preclude men from having great gifts in, in terms of caring. Yeah, I, I was wondering, I'm thinking of the, the nurses that I work with every day, and I wondered if it was a gift of nagging, because <laughs> I, I, I think of them, you know, Dr. Malali, make sure you do the med rec. Did you listen well enough to the lungs, you know, and thank goodness, because otherwise <laughs> yes. I'd be dropping the ball. And I think of my mother, and thank goodness for her keeping me on the straight and narrow. Oh, yeah. But I'm well, sure there's more to it. <laughs> I, I, I've caught myself a nag. I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to be. A, I have. I'm, I'm sorry to be a nag, but well, you know, a, nag, but. amen. Somebody's doing it because that. Thank goodness that is how things don't get missed. And I think it is that attention to detail that highlights how much of caring uh, plays a role in that. Marie, what well, do you think are, is the most important aspect of the intersection of the Catholic faith with the vocation of nursing? I think you've just used the key word, uh, the noun that describes us. It is a vocation. And I never thought of it as anything less. Even as a young 18-year-old, I went to a hospital program. You were well-raised, apparently. (laughs) Well, I I came from a very Catholic home, but the, the concept of vocation, if you even look to Nightingale, who took nursing out of the Dark Ages, you know, the historically, yes. I think this is really important, the monasteries, and those were men who, t- who ran the monasteries, they were the local hospitals uh, in the Middle Ages. The, hos- the, the monasteries 
were the hospitals, the community hospitals, yes. and those were men. The Crusades, the first organized system of healthcare delivery, Knights and Dames of Malta. It was right. only knights at that time. So, uh, Saint John Hospitaller. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, in any event, what happened was when the Reformation came and the monasteries were closed and um, confiscated. Healthcare really went into a very dark time, and that's when Florence Nightingale uh, stepped up, and she talks about putting the patient in the best position for nature to act upon. She called it a spiritual calling, that her, her calling to do what she did, and she turned everything around in terms of, of health care. In terms of the death toll in the Crimea, she reversed yes. that. It was all disease. So, yes, it's a vocation, but even Nightingale a good English woman, Christian woman, she wasn't a Catholic, she saw it as a calling, a sacred calling. And so, yes, it's that intersection of faith, again, and reason, that is the uh, quality that a nurse with a faith perspective, she doesn't have to be a Catholic, but with a faith, faith perspective brings. Nurses talk about that moment when there had to be an angel on our shoulder. We talk about that. We know when something went right in the midst of <laughs> chaos. Yes. And so there, there is a vocational uh, call, and even if uh, people aren't aware of it, I think if looking back in time as they get older, perhaps they'll, you know there are times where we weren't working alone. Well, this is the vocational aspect of of nursing, but there's also an art of nursing and an art of medicine, and that's been overshadowed more and more the last 50, 60 years by the business of medicine. We've seen it as physicians. Has the business of medicine overshadowed any aspect of the art of nursing? I'm afraid that could be true. I think the art, and I think it's the same for medicine as for nursing, you have to do it to develop your trade, if you will. You have to have a number of patients that you have cared for to almost know intuitively, even though I think it's scientifically based, but somewhere in our reason, I've seen this before, and this is what needs to be done now. That is the art, and that takes practice, and that takes doing. And yes, I do think over time, perhaps we've looked more at our healthcare delivery, not necessarily nursing, because for the most part, we're still employees, but as a business. But even in uh, nursing, you will see the nurse just tied to that computer, because we've got to document everything. And we have machines that really are very helpful, but it kind of takes you away from looking, really looking at the patient. And that's the art of nursing. And the business model gets us into recording everything, which is a good thing. It also can get into defensive medicine, defensive nursing, in terms of yes. making sure. So uh, nurses are still employees, so it, we're still working too long. I never remember leaving work on time, ever. Well, <laughs> you, you bring up a good, a good point about changes with technology, and I guess I, I kind of have a two-part question for you as, as mm -hmm. this segment draws to a close before we get into the ethical issues. You know, you have practiced nursing for a long time, even back in the 1970s. What, what do you miss about nursing that was present in your earlier career that's kind of gone by the wayside? And what good things have come that were not there when you first started out? Well, the things that I do miss because my role has changed and I'm not involved in direct patient care in terms of being in a facility where my hands or the hands made the difference. There is something very satisfying about that. So that's not so much a change in the profession, but in the change of my role over time that I became an educator, I became a policy person, I became someone who did consultations for, for persons, and that's the bioethical piece of it. But that actual not relying on the machines completely that brings you so much into direct, intimate contact with the patient where you assess things that perhaps now you're reading a, uh, a, uh, a computer printout or reading 
a scan or reading, uh, even even taking a vital vital signs. Uh, you know, you've got a machine doing the blood pressure. You're not listening. Uh, you know that auscultatory gap that you could hear. You know, when you were taking your blood pressures uh, with uh, your own hearing with a stethoscope. It's the good and the bad news. It's the good and the bad news because. Well, Marie, we're going to take a break right now so we have time to cover the ethical challenges of nursing that are so near and dear to your heart. We'll be right back with more on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking today to Dr. Marie Hilliard, a doctor of nursing. We talked a little bit about nursing as a profession in the first part of the show And now we want to kind of hone in on some of the more recent challenges, especially challenges to conscience. So, Marie, welcome back. And and what what would you like to tell people? You know, we hear so much about conscience protection. Why is this important for nurses? Well, again, as I said earlier, nurses are more apt to be employees. And as employees, there can be coercion uh, for a nurse to have a violation of conscience, and when that happens, the patient is put at great risk because the nurse can't be a patient advocate if she's being told or he's being told, this is what you must do. And the culture seems to be shifting toward if it's legal, it's ethical. And That's exactly what I heard at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, May 1990, in an ophthalmology rotation from an Army colonel. That was his one-hour ethics lecture, if it's legal, it's ethical. I'm very sorry to hear that. That could be a show in itself, I think. Yes, yes, it could. <laughs> very sorry to hear that. Actually, my health care is out of Walter Reed, so I'm very <laughs> sorry to hear that. <laughs> Man. Uh, this but, was one doctor. But, but, well, no, but it's, it is the, the thinking of the day. And we have, we've had ethicists, reputable ethicists, who have written that uh, conscience uh, should be overruled because patient... Patient autonomy seems to trump everything, as if we are vending machines. I'm yes. uh, actually building upon that. The, the philosophy of this particular ethicist is that conscience uh, is should not override existing laws. But think about that. If you were in a country that has very oppressive laws and we didn't take stands, that would be a terrible thing. Yes, so would. I say that really moves into uh, telling someone you leave your 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 values in the locker room where you're when you put on your scrubs or uh, or your lab coat but the people Uh, who don't are the ones who tell you to do that (laughs) right (laughs) that's true well again and nurses have faced this for decades though because since the beginning of the uh, profession in terms of being licensed uh, nurses for the most part have been employees and so nurses have been advocates they have been whistleblowers but it is getting more and more difficult because your religion can be used against you uh, persons who want to practice under the first amendment of the united states constitution which talks about not just worshiping but the free exercise of religion and that's supposed to be in the marketplace so how and has this so, impacted nurses give us some stories well there are numerous ones unfortunately Uh, We've had nurses who've been told that they can't do an internship at a big medical center because if they disagree in participating in some role around abortion. That was overturned. But you think about that young uh, student, soon-to-be graduate nurse, being told such a thing and wanting to go into this very prestigious environment. We've had a nurse, the classic nurses, uh, Kathy DiCarlo, she's even testified in Congress, who was forced to assist at an abortion, who had given all the appropriate notice upon hiring that she was a surgery nurse and this was something that she would not do. And they threatened her license. And she's, she's not a, 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 an isolated case. We had nurses in Long Island. Luckily, their union stood up for them. We had a nurse, nurses in a uh, state hospital in New Jersey, the same thing. So these are not isolated cases. And it, I think that it's also true in terms of medicine, but I do think the fact that historically perhaps nurses had less control as employees over their practice, the examples are, are escalating. Well, and the national, you know, 
one one of the things I think of with Kathy DiCarlo is the difficulty in even pursuing justice, right? Because yeah. there's yeah. there's not a legal opportunity for her to sue the hospital. Is that correct? Yes, and what happened was the, the recent Department of Health and Human Services regulation that they promulgated and the Catholic Medical Association as well as the, as the National Catholic Bioethics Center provided public comment. And in fact, even the Office of Management and Budget at the White House had me in and had me discuss it for a half hour with them. And that new conscience rule, if you will, speaks to the fact that if a person's deeply held religious or moral uh, values are compromised, the federal government can withdraw federal funding from that facility. And almost every healthcare facility gets some sort of federal funding. So she had no right of private action under the old system. Now, unfortunately, that rule, which was promulgated this spring and was to take effect in July of this year, there's already been a lawsuit against it by people who, again, are of the mindset that we are vending machines, and again, I'm, I'm actually uh, adding a dimension to what they're really saying. They're saying we should be able to should cooperate, just and put our values aside. But that makes us just vending machines. You pay us, we'll do it, which is a terrible scenario. But yeah, the, what what are the, even the boundaries then? If you can't tell the patient if you think it's right or wrong, I mean, <laughs> then why why even have a healthcare profession? You could just have vending machines, couldn't you? Well, the the scary thing is the only ones who would be in nursing then are those who are willing to help you kill yourself and who are will help you mutilate yourself. I mean, th- those would be the only people welcome in the field. That's a terrible thing. Especially Talk about shortages. Because nurse- <laughs> I, I yeah. would suspect that most nurses aren't probably willing to do those things. Nurses are, in terms of public trust, one of the, the most trusted We discussed that before you were on, yes. <laughs> most trusted and it's because of that we will be the advocate we will call the doctor when we think this order isn't correct we will go to a family member even some when we think that you might want to be asking questions about this that and uh the other treatment that um, and isn't that what you want as a one. patient too right an advocate an advocate and you also want a whistleblower you also want a whistleblower and again that's what caring is all about the, the best interest of the patient not what i've been told i must do that doesn't mean you violate a patient's informed consent you might have to transfer care it doesn't mean that you are going to assault a patient with a procedure they don't want just because you think they they should have it and and but, these are not these ethical issues don't only arise in big hospitals right these could be these could show up in other roles that nurses hold as well, correct? Oh, n- nurses, school nurses now are facing it with children who uh, have problems with gender dysphoria. And it's something that the research is telling us if children who have a little confusion uh, might, because of society, now think that they really ought to be a girl when they're genetically a boy, etc. But if we just not intervene the way they're intervening now with drugs to stop puberty, 80 to 9% of the children just revert to their normal biological identity. Correct. And what's, what's happening here is nurses and schools are told, thou shalt reinforce something that data is con- increasingly showing us that the suicide rate t- 10 years after patients, thousands had been followed in Sweden. Yes after the surgery, 10 years, and a culture that accepts this transgender as being something that is not uh, bad medicine. And the 19-fold increase in suicides, because every cell has every chromosome from the moment of fertilization. So, yes, nurses in schools are now facing it in terms of cooperating in something that is questionable whether it's in the best interest. What is your advice to somebody listening who wants to go into nursing but is a little bit uh, nervous or scared about these ethical issues they might face? What would you tell them? We need you. (laughs) We need you. 
and and also there is strength in numbers and there there are organizations like the Catholic Medical Association like the National Association of Catholic Nurses USA the National Catholic Bioethics Center where I work which does has a 24/7 free bioethical consultation service and we have over 2000 emails or calls per year a doctorally prepared ethicist who can help you navigate uh, the boot camp that the Catholic Medical Association provides for medical students and, and residents to help mentor and prepare people for the challenges. But we need you because, again, think of what the profession would be like if only those willing to blindly follow and only those willing to participate in a, in a mutilating or death-dealing Procedure. Marie, one of the like? best lines I've heard in all of, I don't know, 80 interviews we've done now was from uh, a physician in Iowa who said that every conversation between a doctor and a patient, so I assume be between a nurse and a patient, is a moral conversation. Yes, yes. I mean, they... they Healthcare is, is, is a moral endeavor. Intrinsically, everything is. There's no part of it that can be amoral. Mm-hmm. You know, and Marie... That's fair, that, that's very sad because that the reality is the culture is saying it should be amoral. We're talking about position statements like the American Nurses Association recent position on the nurse's role when a patient requests medical aid in dying. It basically talks about engaging in a conversation with the patient that's quote-unquote objective, presenting objective facts in a neutral manner. Well... I don't care if you die, yes. Is that neutral? (laughs) (laughs) And and we always would intervene with uh, a patient who was suicidal, but to say that this patient has autonomy and the patient does and that the nurse is to uh, have a discussion in a neutral manner about the objective facts, well, what is objective about wanting to kill oneself, it's, right. there's a huge subjective dimension there well, in terms of what's going on. And Marie, I'm I'm thinking to our listeners, we've talked about a lot of the challenges and also the fact that we need nurses. What are some of the biggest reasons that someone should become a nurse? If it's if it's something that's on their heart, what are some of the, the things that they can look forward to that might encourage them in this path? Well, you enter into the lives of individuals and families in the most intimate way that really is incredibly satisfying. You make a difference, and in making that difference, you also learn so much about life and what's important and what to worry about and what not to worry about. You know, the things that we think are just so important in terms of uh, going, getting along, going along and getting along, uh, that becomes so minor in terms of the life and death that's in our hands. And physicians feel that way too. But the difference you make, and it also changes you when you help someone else. What you do, you become. <laughs> and the, the caring that you provide changes you. And it also helps you in dealing, I used to say, Everyone should go through nursing school, even if you never practice. <laughs> There's something about it that is uh, life-altering. There's no other way to put it. Life-altering, and uh, for the for the better, for the good, for the good. So, in other words, the the body teaches the soul by doing acts of caring. You begin to care more. Uh, I'd I, like to say you you are what you eat. You become what you do. Yeah, that's uh, that's, that's beautiful. very good. You, you know, we talk. We've talked in this show about physician burnout, but what do you know about nurse burnout? Has it changed, or is it just the old term, compassion fatigue? No, it's there, and uh, moral distress is what they're talking about in the literature. And um, even the American Nurses Association has uh, written about moral distress. And it actually escalates when your conscience, which is the ability to not just determine what is good, or bad for your patient, or what's in the best interest of your patient, but to be able to act on it. And that moral distress is increasing, and it's because of the conflicting messages of society about what is the good. 
We don't it's a agree. Very utilitarian yes. good now. Yeah, we don't agree on what a human person is or is for mm-hmm. anymore, which is mm-hmm. uh, incredible. You know, we've got a little over two minutes left. If a nurse wants to get more support in being a fully Catholic nurse, what would you recommend she or he do? Well, the National Association of Catholic Nurses USA, which has actually, its roots were back in 1909 in Boston. It's been around a long time. They had some periods where it was uh, in time that uh, the organization was less active. But every member uh, is a member of an international association of Catholic nurses called the International Committee for nurse and medical so, nurses and medical social assistants, and that organization, that international organization, uh, works in conjunction with the Vatican Dicastery. So, our members have actually gone to to Rome and attended some uh, very important meetings. So, you're in touch with nurses not just from the United States, but from all over the world. That the National Association has members who represent that international association at the United Nations and has done phenomenal work testifying there. But the strength of the organization is meeting with people of like minds who are facing the same challenges, trying to change practice, not just in your Catholic environment. Many nurses don't practice in Catholic environments. Uh, Trying to change your practice in whatever environment you're in and having the strength of discussing things and getting strength from other people and also ideas from other people. And that website is nacn-usa.org. Correct. Uh, In our last 30 seconds, what final information would you like to leave with our listeners? Nursing is a wonderful vocation, and I would recommend it highly. I have no regrets. Uh, it's, It's been a journey, and it's been an adventure. And it is something that, as I say, if you do it, it changes you, and hopefully for the better, because we are actually cooperating with God in this ministry. It's His ministry. Dr. Marie Hilliard, thank you very much for being our guest on Dr. Doctor today. We'll be back with the final segment of the show and the answer to the trivia question after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor coming to you with the answer of the medical trivia question. Today we brought in both medicine and Catholicism and nursing. So the question dealt with St. Catherine of Siena, one of the patron saints of nurses. And I asked, what disease was rampant in Europe when Catherine was born? And also what disease was still somewhat rampant in patients she helped care for later on and occasionally miraculously healed? Yes, this one I I have heard of. It is the plague or the Black Death. Right. So, you know, plague is a generic term, meaning anything that's very common and very bad. But it got its name, the original plague was the Black Death. And in fact, they've extracted teeth from victims buried in graves in the 14th century during the worst part of this pandemic. And they have extracted DNA to show that indeed the causative agent of the Black Death was a bacteria known as Yersinia pestis, or the, the plague bacterium. Mm-hmm. So that's the second answer to the question. What was it caused by? A bacteria that rode in on fleas that rode in on rats. Correct. So it was really the people living in close proximity to rats that spread to the disease. It was uncommon that the disease would spread person to person uh, because most of the time when they had bubonic plague, they had buboes. Right. And a bubo is one of those fun medical words, but it means a really painful swollen lymph node or what people have called swollen glands. And most... Yeah, it's well, something that the patient would notice and likely other people would notice as well. Exquisitely pend- uh, painful, tender in the groin, in the armpit, could be in the neck. But occasionally the disease could get into the bloodstream and could it get into the lungs. And if it got into the lungs, then you could cough it out and then transmit it from person to person. Otherwise, all the cases were contracted by flea bites because if the fleas were killing the rats, they needed another host. And though we weren't exactly tasty, I mean, jumping off of a pizza... 
like a rat, and jumping onto a piece of raw carrot like us, well, they could survive on the raw carrot, but they prefer the rat. Well, and, you know, one of the things to think about, too, is just the level of cleanliness that we have today compared to back then as to why this disease is not as prevalent, but it is still out there. Oh, yes. And uh, it's I, I saw a patient just not not too long ago in the news who had this and came very near death because they couldn't figure out what it was. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's still endemic in the United States. Endemic just means present naturally, uh, mainly in the Four Corners area. Correct. And and I think, isn't it like rodents and like armadillos that carry it commonly? Uh, it, it is typically rodents, prairie dogs, yep. squirrels, coyotes, um, a, a lot of other smaller mammals, uh, and their fleas uh, can carry it. So watch out for the fleas. Absolutely. So thank you, St. Catherine. Yeah, at the time she was alive, it's estimated that the world population went down from 350 million or from 450 million to 350 million. And it took 200 years after the 14th century for the earth to repopulate to the point it was at when the Black Death hit. That's incredible, isn't it? Yes, I I think Mm -hmm. it is incredible. Thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will have a very special guest to discuss anxiety. Dr. Kevin Majors, psychiatrist, Harvard Medical School. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com slash doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.